0: Many people say that regardless of the cause of a particular war, every party to that war is obliged to fight according to the rules of humanitarian law. So even though Israel is justified in fighting Hamas in self-defense, it cannot do so by by violating international law, specifically international humanitarian law or the laws of war. Is this perspective right? Should the Israeli defense forces abide by international humanitarian law. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Iron Institute. Um, this is a special mini series shedding light on the conflict uh, in the Middle East. My name is Zimowicz Gawin. I'm a junior fellow at ARI. And today I will be interviewing Ankur Gate, a senior fellow here at uh, ARI. Uh, Ankur, hi.
1: Hi, Simone.
0: So. I wanted to start uh, by talking about international law of war, or what sometimes is called, as I said, international human humanitarian law. So we have so we have things such as the kellogg Bryant Pact. Uh, we have the UN uh, Charter of 1945. There are Gen- Geneva uh, Conventions, the Hague Conventions. There's even the International Criminal Court. And so basically the, the premise, the idea behind uh, those laws is that war is causing so much suffering. War is so horrible that we need to do something about it. We need to limit it in order to limit, to decrease uh, human uh, suffering. And so, you know, we have laws re- regarding the non-combatants. Uh, uh, civilians we have laws regarding the prisoner the prisoners of law uh, we have also uh, specific laws regarding uh, when we can actually enter uh, enter a war And so maybe let's start with with the last kind of war which is sometimes called use ad bellum. So use ad bellum is is a law that concerns when the states, uh, can legitimately engage in a war, and you know this seems in this, this seem controversial because uh, usually, according to the international law, uh, we can engage a war in self-defense. And so, for example, in Article Two of the Charter of the United uh, Nations, uh, we read: "Quote, all members shall refrain in their international." relations from the threat or the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner, inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And there's another uh, article, Article 51, uh, quote, nothing in the present uh, charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations. And so, Ankar, apart from the references to, you know, inconsistency with the purposes of the U, of the UN, would you say that it's a legitimate way to think about when states can enter a war?
1: No. The whole conception of international laws of war that, this is one instance of, I think is mistaken. and the the idea that we may have to make war as humane as possible, that's one of the ways you, you put it, but I, I think you're quoting this is the way that it will be described, is it, it sanitizes war or it's an attempt to sanitize war, to make it more palatable. And that makes more that makes war much more likely. So the idea that there's um, it's okay if you go to war as long as you do it following the rules, I think is it, it's fundamentally mistaken. And part of what it the reason it's fundamentally mistaken is it whitewashes dictatorships. So what, what you quoted, "There is no right to self-defense in the way that the UN Charter is making reference to, that you have a right to your territorial, integrity to your sovereignty to self-defense if you're attacked not if you're a dictatorship not if you're a tyranny a dictatorship a tyranny like north korea like iraq when it was attacked under saddam hussein like what exists in iran today a religious theocracy those regimes and therefore the countries that they rule over have no rights they've repeatedly and systematically violate the rights of their own citizens, and they can't then turn around and claim, oh, we've got a right to self-determination. We have a right to our sovereignty. And if we're attacked, we have a right to self-defense. They might fight back, but they don't have a right to fight back. Those regimes themselves are illegitimate, and they cannot claim any rights, including the right to self-defense. And so the UN, part of the whole purpose of the UN is to make An equation, an equivalency between dictatorships and free or semi-free countries and say, well, they all have a right to their sovereignty, their territorial integrity and a right to defend themselves if attacked. No, it's radically different if you're North Korea and you're attacked or if you're Denmark and you're attacked. One has a right to self-defense because it's a legitimate country and government. The other is not. North Korea is not.
0: And would you nonetheless say that there is something to the idea that let's even limit it to free nations, that there's such a thing as a legitimate um, goal or or legitimate reason for going to war?
1: So there is, if it's a war of one of self-defense, or if if there's an attempt to preempt. So one of the things that Ayn Rand said about this is, The the point I was just making, that a dictatorship, a religious theocracy, a communist or uh, fascist totalitarian state, it has no rights. Any free country has the right to invade those countries. To take one example, during Ayn Rand's lifetime, the the U.S. had the right to invade Cuba. Whether it would do so is to think, is it in the self-interest of the nation? Does America need to invade Cuba, but it has the right to do so. And so it's, and it, you might even like, they might even think, well, look, Cuba is more and more having a relationship with Russia. And this is a threat, but might become a more substantial threat. We should neutralize it now. It's broadly speaking, a war of self-defense, but not because you've been attacked just because you've been threatened to be Attacked, and then, I mean, if, if the U.S. had done that prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis, had invaded uh, Cuba and toppled it, you wouldn't have had the Cuba Missile Crisis. So there, even there, can be wars of preemption. But more broadly, those should be seen in a self-defense context, but not "we've just been attacked and therefore can fight back."
0: Um, so there's a quote from Rand that I would like you to comment on. Um, So I'm uh, quoting, it's from a workshop on objectivist ethics and uh, and, uh, politics from 1970. Quote, you know, the contradiction of international law, the attempt to make the use of physical force, which is war, subject to some kind of laws. You can't. You can agree by mutual consent not to murder prisoners or not to bomb women and children if it can be helped but it's an agreement of no great significance because the idea of a war means two groups of men have decided they cannot reach any rational agreement and they resort to force. There can be no laws being observed or not even an etiquette if you consider that men are slaughtering each other and are deciding issues by means of murder. So there's no such thing as don't bombard hospitals. Well, if it well, it is valid if both sides see an, an advantage uh, in it, but the idea of don't murder women and children, I don't think it is particularly relevant if you're murdering men. If it's tactically necessary to bomb civilians during a war, you have to, close quote. So, Ongar, how, how are you interpreting those words? What is Rand really saying here?
1: I think it's the flip side of a point that I made earlier, that what international humanitarian law ends up doing, it ends up um, sanitizing or making trying to make palatable war. And her point here is that war is the breakdown of civilization. It means when there's some kind of dispute, we have no means, and we've tried other things to try to settle this dispute, we have no means other than physical force. It's a resort, resort, as she put it in that quote, um, to murder. You're each trying to kill the other, and the idea that you're going to have some kind of um, rules or even etiquette is one way she puts it. Of you're just going to follow. Um, oh well, it would be unwelcome to do this, so we're not going to do that. It's sort of beneath us. It's you're the other side is trying to kill you. And if you have a modicum of self-esteem, and if you view that you're fighting in legitimate self-defense, you'll do what is necessary to defend yourself, to end the aggressor's ability to keep killing you and your um, citizens and your soldiers. And if, if that's your context, then it's not that there's no principles applicable to war, but what it does mean is you don't view the other side as oh yeah they're like the, they're I, they're nice people and we can have some kind of agreement and we can expect them to abide by an agreement so what one of them when she said this agreement of no great significance it's agreement there's no reason to think the other side would even uphold so why like if you have to f- kill each other what does it mean that you're making agreements with each other about how you're going to kill each other. That is, so there's something deeply incoherent that one of the ways she put it, it's a contradiction. And that's part of the contradiction. I think there's more to it than that, but I think that's part of what she's getting at.
0: So now maybe let's talk about specific ideas that are, that fall into the, the category uh, of use in a bellum. So the law concerning uh, the means that you can use or, or the specific principles that you have to abide by uh in a war and so the first principle i would like to talk about is the principle of uh, proportionality um and so it has even a a formal definition but the basic idea is that there should be their ha- there ha- balance uh between your military advantage and the damage and civilian losses that you cause, and so, for example, you cannot destroy a whole city in in order to kill one enemy uh, soldier. And we have, uh, we have this principle in international law. So, Article Fifty One of the Geneva Conventions says, "Quote: La- Launching an attack which may be expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, which would be excessive." in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage uh, anticipated is prohibited. And in context of Israel, of, of the Israel-Hamas war, we hear that Israel is breaking this principle all the time. And one of the examples is Norway's prime uh, minister, Jonas Støre, and he says, quote, Israel knows that we condemn Hamas terror and that we defend Israel's right to defend itself. At the same time, at the same time, we require that proportionality is respected. And the extent of destruction and the hum- and the humanitarian suffering happening now is beyond that. And so, uh, close quote. And so, this this idea of proportionality, people actually discuss it. People actually uh, want Israel to follow it. And so, Ankur, what's your take on this? Uh, principle. Is it valid at all?
1: No, I think it's an example of the way in which the the so-called international rules of war actually cripple the ability to defend oneself. And here in the context is legitimate self-defense. You're a free nation that's been attacked in the way that Israel has been attacked by Hamas. And this wasn't the first attack. They've been ongoing attacks by Hamas, which is the ruling, governing party in the Gaza Strip. The, what is necessary in self-defense is to do what is necessary to end the ability of the aggressor to keep attacking you, keep wounding and killing your civilians and, and soldiers and your infrastructure and so on. And it, one has to think, like what actually is necessary to do this? but it's not, there's no issue of proportionality that you're weighing lives uh, of civilians in enemy territory versus military targets. The whole thing has to be just what is necessary to eliminate the military targets. And one of the reasons that I, I said before, it sanitizes the war. It's anybody in a country that is turning aggressive, that is turning dictatorial totalitarian towards its own citizens is going to treat citizens in other nations in the same way it treats its own citizens who are no longer citizens they're subjects to force to the rule of force they're going to treat everybody like that any neighboring country will rightly view this uh, a country descending into dictatorship to totalitarianism as a potential threat and then an active threat And to end that threat might be massive destruction. It's one of the reasons people in these places should care deeply about who is ruling here, who's in power. Um, And in Gaza, there were many people who voted for Hamas when Hamas's whole program was to wipe out Israel. And you have to think as a citizen, look, if we're voting for this, Israel rightly has to view us as aggressors and as a threat. And they will rightly do what's necessary to end the threat. And if you have someone like Hamas who deliberately builds, and everybody knew this, building miles and miles and miles of tunnel underground, all kinds of underground, all kinds of civilian infrastructure, Israel contends that it includes, they put them under hospitals and schools and so on, that to end that threat means massive destruction. Uh, and including of all kinds of civilian infrastructure. And there's not an issue of proportionality. It's just, yeah, unfortunately, this is what is necessary to end the threat that Hamas poses. And that's what the government has to be focused on. So you don't kill people willy-nilly, but you also don't think, oh, well, Hamas has built things under um, hospitals, so I guess there's nothing we can do. And we have to live with this threat and this aggressor perpetually attacking us. And that's not valid.
0: So would you apply the same reasoning uh, to in order to reject the idea? So, so Israel decided at some point to cut off electricity, food and water and fuel uh, that was actually going from Israel to the Gaza Strip. Uh, and so Israel correctly uh, said that, well, their Hamas is using it. Um, and so they decided to uh, cut it off at some point, and it has been criticized. So, for example, uh, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said that, "quote, the imposition of sieges that endanger the lives of civilians, priving them of goods essential for their survival, is prohibited under international humanitarian law." Uh, clo- uh, close quote. And some people say it's a it's a war crime. What What do you think uh, about that?
1: So it's another example of the way in which the international rules of war, these so-called humanitarian rules, I think sanitize war. There's a kind of picture of this whole desire to put into one camp the soldiers and the so-called combatants and in another camp, the civilians and the non-combatants. And think these are two kind of disparate, separate camps that don't interact, and so that you can treat war. okay, war is between just the combatants on each side, and the civilians can go their merry way, and nobody should be attacking them, targeting them. There might be some collateral damage, but try to minimize that as much as possible. That is. Maybe, though I think it's not true, but you can think of like medieval warfare as like that. It's a bunch of knights fighting each other and yeah, leave the population alone. They're not interested in this. That modern warfare is not like that at all. So you brought up Israel's perspective is, yeah, if you allow in fuel and so on, it goes to Hamas. That is, it goes to maintaining the tunnels, maintaining the whole infrastructure that makes it possible for the Gaza Strip to remain a significant threat to Israeli lives uh, and to Israeli citizens. And in that context, the civilians are part of what makes it possible for Gaza to represent a threat. And it's more than just, it certainly is true that part of Hamas's strategy is to use civilians as human shields, but it's also true that what keeps all of this going is that there's continues to be um economic functioning in a place in enemy territory and if you're targeting that in order to end the threat so it's again not to kill for no reason but if they think this is this is the only way we can end the the threat of that Hamas poses then unfortunately it's the only way and what's revealing is Nobody has any alternative. Nobody says, oh, you could kill Hamas and destroy it without doing this. No, it's it's part of why they're calling for a ceasefire and so on. It's not, oh yeah, that's the end of Hamas. It's no, you can't eliminate Hamas because the civilian toll will be too high. And it is tragic that the civilian toll will be high, particularly of the Palestinians who will be killed, who are actually opponents of Hamas, either innocent like children so, or actual active opponents of Hamas, but a lot aren't, and the fact is one of the reasons you really have to care that really we're living in a place that Hamas is coming into power, and then it drove out its political rivals and so on and seized power, and there haven't been elections since, that makes you um, a target of a free nation that if you're, you're the whole place is a base for which to attack Israel, then Israel rightly has to think of it as a threat. And again, the idea of trying to isolate the civilians is it tries to sanitize war. War is horrible. And the aggressors should be viewed as this is the worst thing that you can do. One, you're at war with your own people. And then two, you wage war against other civilians in other countries. And it's an abomination And it should be thought that if a nation descends to that level, who knows what destruction it's going to witness if the people fighting in self-defense are victorious.
0: Another question that I have is, so in the quote uh, from Rand that we talked about uh, earlier, she says that there's no such thing as don't bombard hospitals. But in the next sentence, she says, well, it is valid if both sides see an advantage in it. So I wanted to ask you about, it's an interpretative uh, question. Do you think, based on that, and generally, is it ever proper to agree not to bomb uh, uh, hospitals? Or another example would be that we agree that both sides agree that prisoners of war uh, will be treated well, that they will not be killed or... Tortured?
1: I don't think it is. And I think part of what she said, when she says, what both sides see an advantage of it. The real issue is you will abide by certain principles if you think those principles and those rules help you achieve victory. And so you can imagine situations in which you're worried about turning the population against you in enemy territory. And if you can really avoid bombing some hospitals, particularly if there's civilian hospitals and so on, and you don't, it's not necessary to win the war. Yeah, what is the point of doing it? It looks like wanton killing, and it makes it more likely that the civilians in enemy territory, uh, or just people in enemy territory, will, even if you win, will continue to try to attack you in a guerrilla warfare and so on. it, so it has to be that it, it really has a real military objective. But if it does, then you should do it and not you don't need an agreement. So even something like bombing hospitals, um, she said, like, if it's a tactic, then you have to do it. I mean, if it's a hospital, that what it's doing is all kinds of soldiers go there and then they recuperate and then they join the front line again. It's part of what is enabling them to continue to attack you. And you can imagine situations in which you would bomb it. um, And you would bomb it because you view it as necessary for victory. Um, Something like POWs, it's again, the issue would be, it's a tactical issue. It's not there's an international um, law regarding how to deal with POWs. It's a tactical issue about, You want, so presumably, you want enemy soldiers to surrender. If you treat POWs really badly, let alone if you execute POWs, it's like who's going to surrender if they think what's going to happen is where you're going to execute us if you surrender? But you can imagine situations where it's just too costly to maintain prisoner of war camps, to guard them and so on, and and that a country fighting in self-defense thinks that we cannot do this. And the, the so the question of how to treat prisoners of war is very contextual on the actual war and what's necessary to achieve victory. And it's in that context that you think about it. But there's like, if you're fighting and uh, you're fighting say Germans in World War II and like many who've been conscripted and they don't wanna fight. And if you think, yeah, they'll surrender. And if they know we treat the POWs humanely, it makes it more likely they surrender. You can see a reason for why you would do that, but it, again, it, that it's, so she put it, it's a tactical issue, not this kind of um, law that you somehow are morally reprehensible if you do something other than what's prescribed in so-called humanitarian international law.
0: So to sum up uh, this part of the discussion, uh, if if I understand you correctly, international law, international laws of war are not something that we should uphold. It's, it's, as you said, it's, it's, there's, there's a contradiction. You cannot really have a law in wars. And so I have a, a, a question, a practical question, because if so, should we withdraw from the Geneva Conventions, from the UN Charter, and from other Uh, conventions or, you know, agreements uh, that impose some rules on them.
1: Yes, I think we should withdraw from any of these uh, either organizations or supposed agreements, conventions that have at least these two features, that what they actually do is sanitize and try to make war more palatable more humane, it is not. And the, the related issue that we've been talking about in regard to that, when they equate free nations and dictatorships and say, oh, they all have to play by the same rules. They all have to abide by the these international humanitarian rules and laws. All you're doing is you're emboldening the dictatorships because you're making it seem like, oh yeah, they follow rules and they're law abiding and they can form agreements and so on. And they're not, they, they terrorize their own citizens and they will terrorize, if given the chance, everybody else and the idea that they, they oh yeah, these are nice people who follow law and so on. No, the whole thing about these regimes is they have no law in their own countries and they will not respect and don't respect rights and therefore law internationally. And so when you make it seem like, oh, yeah, we're all um, equal partners signing an agreement and so on, that by itself whitewashes dictatorships and so on. So it's not to say free nations shouldn't have principles, how they think about war, how they wage war, when they go to war and so on. But it's not international law that says like we operate the same way or should operate the same way dictatorships operate. Dictatorship should not exist. Period.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Um, So now maybe let's move. So so one part is the international humanitarian law, and some people say, well, Israel is violating law uh, that it it has signed itself. Uh, But apart from that, there's also some codes or laws that Israel uh, have as kind of domestic law. And so I've been reading, and there's uh, a code of ethics of the Israel Defense uh, Forces. And so they have such values as responsibility, credibility, personal uh, example, and these are mostly reasonable uh, values. They usually pertain to effective, being effective uh, soldier. But there's also one value Uh, which caught my uh, attention. It's called Purity of Arms. And uh, it says, so according to this value, quote, the IDF servicemen and women will use their weapons and force only for the purpose of their mission, only to the necessary extent and will maintain their humanity even during combat. IDF soldiers will not use their weapons and force to harm human beings who are not combatants or prisoners of war, and they will do all in their power, all in their power to avoid causing harm to their lives, bodies, dignity, and property, uh, close quote. And uh, one of the co-authors of this code of uh, ethics, who's by the way, a professor of uh, ethics at Tel Aviv University, uh, he says that the IDF has, uh, quote, the obligation to protect the life, health and property of non-combatants who live there in uh, the Gaza Strip under Hamas control. Uh, close quote. And so this, of course, is uh, opinion. Uh, but the Israel Supreme Court in 2006 stressed, for example, the importance. It, it basically, the the Supreme Court said that Israeli defense uh, forces have to follow the principle of proportionality. And so these are examples of domestic either laws or uh, codes of conduct in war. And so what do you think is, is the role of domestic law regarding military conduct, regarding war?
1: There's a very important role, but what you're bringing up is very mixed because there, so this is the side that is valid, and then talk about the side that is not valid. In a free country, an army is under civilian control. This is part of what, is, in the creation of the United States, one element that's very important is that the Commander-in-Chief is the U.S. President. He's appointed by the people. It's not the military who is in charge. The military follows orders and follows civilian orders the will of the people and it's so that the us hasn't had the military take over and rule as it does in so many other countries and has happened in the in the last century and a half so often it's a real achievement of the united states that it has the most powerful military in the world and yet it doesn't seize political control so it's very important that the the military is the one following orders and so part of what you read is that soldiers have to follow orders they have to obey what the mission is and they act in support of the mission but they can't just be now i'm on enemy territory i can shoot whoever i want do a rape and pillage and so that is that that's what dictatorships do A, a free nation doesn't need to do it but part of what's so important about it is Yet the soldiers are operating under orders and under a mission and they have to follow that and disobedience of that is a real problem and in a free society that military personnel, whether they're lowly, like low in the hierarchy of individual soldiers or generals and so on, who say, no, like I'm not following orders, I don't care what the president said, this is what we're doing. So that's a real threat and should be treated as such. But it's not an issue of international law. It's an issue about the principles that govern a proper, free government, and so that the, the the military is under the rule of law, and that's of domestic law, and and can't just wield any power that it wants because it has the guns and the tanks and the aircrafts. That's really important, and the. the and I think that's part of what, of what you read about Israel's rules. That's part of what it's getting at. But then the content of the rules is so often taken from international humanitarian codes and so on. And the actual content and the actual principles they're subordinating the military to are often principles and rules that are um, antithetical to the country's actual self-interest they're antithetical to protecting the soldiers lives and doing what's necessary for victory and so again like part of what you read from about the the kind of self-imposed rules that israel's putting on its forces is we've got to make this kind of in the end a bogus distinction between civilians or combatants and non-combatants and as though all non-combatants are in are innocent and have nothing to do with the, the power of the, in this case of the Gaza Strip and Hamas, to continuing to attack you. So you have to do all kinds of things to try to protect them. And so, and so in effect, you're treating them like they're citizens of Israel that we're also sworn to protect and so on. And that is, it, it really hampers and cri- even cripples the ability to engage in self-defense. And we saw, it's not just Israel. We saw this in regard to the US Army in Iraq. And it was, I think it's unquestionable that soldiers, US soldiers died in Iraq because of the so-called rules of engagement um, that were imposed on the military. And it's not that it's wrong to have rules imposed on the military. It's wrong to have self-sacrificial rules imposed on the military. And that's what happened because the content so often is taken from these international humanitarian uh, codes.
0: So I have one last question. We've talked about international laws of war or international humanitarian law. We talked about domestic laws uh, concerning military uh, conduct and wars. So, my last question is is more general and I, I wanted to ask you, how should we think about international law as, as such? Um, there's a, a, a quote from Rand that I, that I wanted to read, it's from the same workshop. Rand says that international law is, quote, simply agreements among semi-civilized governments to observe certain rules and they are no more valid nor better than the governments that subscribe to them. If the governments involve certain basic principles and they make an agreement consonant with those principles, the enforcement would come from them. If one of them changes its mind or changes its personal and violates the international law, there is nothing that can be done about it. Close quote. How do you think she thinks about international law as such?
1: Yes, I think she thinks, broadly speaking, there is no such thing. It's a misconceptualization. The clearest and most obvious example is when two countries are at war and the idea that, oh, well, but they're governed by some kind of law. They When you're at war, it means you don't see any interest in common with the person you're fighting. You're trying to subjugate them and kill them. And in that context, to think, well, yeah, but there's some laws that are applicable, there are no such things that are applicable in those in those contexts. It's either kill or be killed. When you have dealings with other countries that are friendly, so that aren't trying to kill you. Um, so the US has agreements with Canada and Mexico, say a trade agreement. You, it's more understandable that one would think, oh, well then here's an agreement, or a treaty, isn't that like where and people sign it? Isn't this like a law? It's sort of like, but in in essence, no. What a law is, is an, a, a rule of conduct that's enforceable. And there's a mechanism of enforcement. And enforcement here is, means you can bring coercion against the person if they're violating the law. If there's a law against speeding, a policeman can come and give you a ticket. And if you don't pay your ticket, you'll get fined more. And if you keep doing that, you can get jail time. That's what it means, it's enforceable. And in international, even agreements and treaties, they're not enforceable because there is no party who's ruling over all of the people who are um, signatories of the agreement or of the treaty. And so all there is, is for each of the countries to think, no, it's in my self-interest, to maintain this agreement um, and to uphold it. And if we've signed an agreement or a treaty, we need to take that seriously and uphold it. And if a government or a new administration that comes into power thinks, no, but this agreement or this treaty is not actually in the self-interest of the country, they can withdraw from it. And that's what they should do if they don't think it's in their self-interest to maintain it. But if they do, and they've signed a treaty, then they should uphold it. So, there, like, it's more understandable why what someone would think. Well, that's akin to law, but it's fundamentally different because there's no coercion and no enforceable mechanism of coercion in the case of international affairs. That's why
0: they're different. Yeah, that's that's uh, illuminating. Thank you so much for this uh, interview. Thanks everyone for watching and stay tuned for more. Thank you.
1: Thanks.